Hello and welcome to this episode of Criminal Justice Natters with me, Ed Johnston. Today I'm joined by David Rudolph, who many of you will know was the lead defence lawyer in the Netflix documentary, The Staircase. So not only do we discuss the uh, Staircase documentary today, we also discuss the HBO dramatisation of The Staircase and identify certain elements that are perhaps fiction rather than being based on fact. And we talk about David's uh, book and his podcast with his wife, Sonia, uh, Abuse of Power, which is on Audible. And we discuss David being at CrimeCon in London next in a couple of weeks time. So I hope you enjoy the chat and thank you for watching. Thanks for joining us again, David. It's uh, your second time here. So I appreciate you coming back. Well, I appreciate you having me twice. Yeah. How are, how are you? You good? I'm, I'm excellent. Thank you very much, Ed. Good. Good, good. Um, so there's been a lot of interest in the HBO show. It's kind of brought the Skeptic Staircase case back to sort of, you know, public attention. Um, so I've got a couple of questions in and around that. And the first one is, when did you hear that the that a serial was going to be made of this and what, what were your initial thoughts and concerns with it? Well, I, I, I had known that Antonio Campos wanted to do something based on the staircase for a long time. Uh, I had had a meeting with him back in 08 or 09 uh, and he was interested even then. Uh, but uh, it sort of got delayed and delayed. And, and then I finally read about it when, uh, I guess Harrison Ford was originally supposed to play Michael Peterson. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that uh, got, I guess it was in Variety or one of those uh, trade publications. And somebody told me about that. And uh, that was the first I had really heard about it. Uh, and then, of course, there was a delay. And, uh, and then uh, all of a sudden, Colin Firth was playing uh, Michael yeah. Peterson. So uh, that, that's sort of how I heard about it uh, uh, through the media. Yeah. Um, and were you involved in the sort of portrayal of yourself in the show? Did you meet the actor? I, I did meet the actor. Uh, he was, he was very, uh, uh, kind. He, he came to, uh, to Charlotte. He spent a day and a half with me. Uh, we talked about, uh, the entire case. Uh, he took copious notes, uh, and, uh, uh, I was quite encouraged by his seriousness and desire to understand the facts. Uh, and somehow or another between then and when it hit the screen, uh, those facts became uh, fiction. Uh, yeah. Very disappointing. And I've seen you describe it uh, as a fantasy in one of the articles about the TV show. What, what parts are fantasy or what point parts disappoint you? Well, um, look, uh, you know, that's just my characterization. Uh, I think a lot of it is, is the fantasy of the writers uh, and how they can move a narrative along in a way that engages people uh, who have already seen the, the actual documentary, which is hard to top. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, for I'll, I'll give you some, some minor examples and then some more important examples. Um, uh, you know, they show me meeting Michael Peterson for the first time in a diner eating a pastrami sandwich. Uh, yeah. You know, that's just silly. Uh, I would never do that. I have never done that. I don't like pastrami. Uh, 
uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I, you know, I had told uh, uh, the actor, Michael Stolberg, the whole story that I had gone to Michael's house, that we had walked through the, the scene. Uh, so why would they change that? I, I guess, uh, you know, it's a not so subtle way of saying, oh, gee, this guy's Jewish and from New York. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it was just sort of silly and, and you know, made me look sort of silly, uh, stupid, uh, you know, from meeting a client in a public place uh, over a sandwich. You just, you just don't do that. Uh, you know, the next thing they showed was me and my partner, Tom Maher, standing in the grand jury room while the prosecutor was presenting evidence to the grand jury. That never happens anywhere in the United States. We're not allowed in the grand jury room. Uh, so, you know, that was just sort of silly. Uh, then, of course, they, they show me on the phone with Bill Peterson, Michael's uh, uh, brother, uh, and he's saying, well, David, I'm, we're selling the furniture in order to write you the checks for the appeal. Again, we, Tom Maher was appointed by the court to do the appeal because Michael was indigent. Uh, and, uh, you know, we never charged him a penny after the trial was over. So why make it seem as though the greedy lawyers are, you know, forcing his, their client to sell all his furniture in order to pay for the appeal? You know, just absolute false. Uh, and it, it puts lawyers in a bad light. You know, we're, we're back to being money grubbers uh, in that in that scene. Uh, so, you know, those are just three examples. Uh, there's many others in terms of my role and, and what I did. Uh, but then, of course, with Michael, uh, they show me having this conversation with him, a heated conversation where I'm excoriating him for not telling me about Germany until four weeks before the trial. And there's a little you know, thing that goes up. It says four weeks before trial. And then it shows me finding out about Germany and sort of yelling at Michael about why didn't you tell me this? Completely false. You know, I mean, we knew about Germany for a year and a half before the trial. We went, Ron and I went to Germany. Uh, you know, we investigated that. We, we brought back reports. Um, so why make it look like Ed hid that from us uh, when in fact he didn't, yeah. you know, that's not fair to Ed. Uh, and then I think, you know, the, the big, big problem with it is they ascribe motives to Jean de Lestrade, the, the director and Sophie Brunette, uh, who was one of the editors, not the only editor, uh, of wanting to help Michael and, and a, uh, <laughs> The facts are completely jumbled in that thing. Sophie was gone from the project just about the time the trial ended. She didn't edit any of the trial footage. That was done by another person named Scott Stevenson. Um, uh, she had nothing to do with what ended up in, that, in those first eight episodes about the trial. Uh, and she certainly, and, and John certainly didn't have any uh, motive at that point to quote, help Ed's appeal uh, because they were not permitted to air the film until after the appeal was over. That was part of our agreement. So on every single level, uh, that was wrong and defamatory. I mean, they, they accused a Academy Award winning documentary filmmaker of being unethical. And I don't know that it gets any worse than that. 
and and it's I just find it uh, inexcusable and immoral, to be honest. And and I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the point you make about the impression that this leaves about about lawyers to the wider public is very important. I think things like uh, the staircase and making a murderer really illustrates how important lawyers are, the role that they play, everything that they do in the zealous pursuit for their clients' best interests. And I think this really dilutes some of the work that's been undone to show this to, to a wider audience. Absolutely. And, you know, the one thing I asked, I, I didn't care whether they portrayed, you know, the cases favoring Michael, he's innocent, he's guilty. I didn't care. The only thing I really cared about was how they portrayed the criminal defense lawyers, because I had that was the whole reason why I did the the uh, documentary. Uh, I wanted people to see what we actually do, as opposed to what popular media portrays us as doing falsely. Uh, and uh, Ed, you know, I've got hundreds of emails and text messages saying wow, you know, uh, I think Michael's guilty, but, but I have a whole new appreciation of what defense lawyers do, yeah. which is just amazing to me, you know, and, and it's exactly the point of the documentary is let's show people how the criminal justice system actually works. Yeah. And let's show people what criminal defense lawyers, whether they're in Great Britain, whether they're in Ireland, whether they're in, in, United States, Australia, this is what we do, not what's on law and order special victims unit, right? And, and instead, and I asked him, I, I said to Antonio, please, just don't mess that up. Yeah. And I said to Michael Stolberg, that's the only thing I care about, Michael. It's the only thing I care about. Just, you know, please make sure that you don't, you know, play into the tropes uh, about criminal defense lawyers. And boom, there I am eating a pastrami sandwich uh, and, you know, forcing my client to sell his furniture uh, in order to pay for an appeal. I mean, why? Why yeah. do that? Uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm angry. It's yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see. Um, and one of the things that really struck me in an early episode, I, I don't know if, if you would know this, um, but, or you would know the answer to this, was where a senior police officer was leaning on the medical examiner to... No, no, that wasn't a police officer. It, it was, wasn't an officer. It, it, it was the chief medical examiner. Right. It was the chief medical examiner who comes into Deborah Radish's office. Yeah. And she's, she's writing down that the cause of death was loss of blood. And he says to her... No, no, no. It's I think it's traumatic brain injury or uh, but you, you do whatever you want. Yeah. Right. And in fact, that happened. We didn't did know. Oh, yes. We didn't know it happened until after the trial when we were going through the police files and we found a note about that. So think about that for a second, about the corruption of the system when you have the chief medical examiner of the state of North Carolina coming in and basically trying to create the impression that this was a murder 
in the autopsy report, as opposed to loss of blood. We don't know what caused the loss of blood. I mean, we know there's lacerations, but to say that's blunt force trauma, you can't say that. You know, yeah. it could be somebody wielding a knife and, and cutting a scalp. I mean, you just can't say it. And so, again, it, it just sort of illustrates the the corruption, I guess, the, the abuse of power in the system. Uh, and, you know, as you well know, we, we have a whole podcast on uh, on uh, uh, Audible UK about the abuse of power. Uh, and, you know, I've written a book uh, that that sort of details in many, many ways how the authorities abuse their power in very specific cases. Mm -hmm. with devastating results. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll come on to the book um, a, 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 bit, a bit later because, sure. uh, again, it's a fascinating read. And I, I found it really, really sad uh, to, to read. It was really hard to read. Um, in uh, another thing that cropped up in the the show that I've recently watched, because uh, I think we've got a slight delay here in the UK on, on when we get them. But um, in the latest episode, Michael intimates that um, you weren't necessarily 100% focused oh, in terms of your representation and you're off to get married. And then there's right. cross words between the two of you. Is that bullshit? Com complete <laughs> and utter bullshit, if I can say so on your yeah. podcast. Um, first of all, I didn't abandon Michael in 2006, which is when that scene is set. You know... First of all, I never abandoned him, but I never even told him I was I can't go on with this until 2014, because in 2000, you know, I had already, you know, from 2003 on, we did the appeal. We did a second appeal. I filed a motion for appropriate relief, a post conviction motion. All of that. We didn't charge Michael anything for. And we and we got him a new trial. Uh, so all through that, I was there. I, I didn't quote you know, leave him because I was getting married. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then uh, we got the new trial and we tried to work out a, a uh, arrangement, a deal uh, to get the prosecutor, just drop the charges and we couldn't do it. And we, that went on for three years. And finally in 2014, it appeared as though uh, we were going to have to go to trial. By that time I had gotten married I had a four-year-old daughter uh, and I was living almost 200 miles away from Durham and I couldn't, I couldn't do a trial again. I, I just couldn't physically. So what I did was uh, I told Michael that, but I also told him that I had contacted a really good lawyer in Raleigh, somebody who I really respected, Mike Klinkasom. Uh, and uh, that, and I said, listen, why don't you meet with me and Mike? Let's see if the two of you, you know, get along uh, and what you think of Mike. Uh, and I did that. I facilitated all that. And he was fine with Mike, which he should have been because Mike's a great lawyer. And then I went to the judge and I said, listen, judge, I can't do this. Uh, but Mike Klinkasom is willing to be appointed. And so Mike got appointed to represent uh, Ed. I mean, uh, Ed. Mike got appointed to represent Mike. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and he did for the next, I guess, year or year and a half until he had a stroke, which completely disabled him. And at that point, I called Michael and said, do you need me to come back in? And he said, yes. 
So I went back in and I worked out the deal. So to, to intimate that at any point I, quote, abandoned him and that we had a fight about that and that he excoriated me about that and made sarcastic comments about enjoy your family. Mm -hmm. Michael and I never had a cross word. Never. Not one. You know, I mean, I, the one look, people may like him or not like him. I get it. But as far as I'm concerned, he is a stand up person because never once did he try to blame me for what happened in that trial. Never mm -hmm. once. Never once did he assert, you know, ineffective assistance of counsel, which lots of people do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, I just found that incredibly, incredibly uh, offensive. And they knew it wasn't true. Yeah. They, all you have to do is watch the documentary and you know, it's not true. Yeah. So it's, it's very frustrating Ed. it's really frustrating. Is there anything you think the HBO show has covered well or done well? Like yeah. Any positives out there? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give them their due about that. Um, I think that in the first couple of episodes, the way they portray the relationship between Michael and Kathleen seems to me, I, I, I never, I don't have any personal experience with it, but the way that their friends and acquaintances describe that relationship seems to be fairly accurately portrayed in those first couple of episodes. They laugh, you know, they have a sense of humor there. They tease each other. Um, they, they travel, they drink wine, you know, they, they get along Everybody who we talk with who knew that couple, everybody said they finished each other's sentences. They were amazing couple together. Some people said that, you know, that they were jealous of that relationship. Um, so that was fairly unusual because almost always in these cases, some friend or acquaintance says, oh, well, you know, I, I knew I, I thought there was something going on. Yeah. Yeah. None of that. None of that. So I think that part of the of the HBO series is is um, well done. Uh, and I think the way they portrayed the owl attack mm. was pretty much the way uh, Larry Pollard uh, had uh, articulated it. And I think the facts that they used in that episode to support the owl theory were the facts that you've heard me do it. I um, have, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're the facts that uh, they could have just been ripping off one of my lectures. Yeah. Uh, so the, those are all the right facts. And whilst I have you on the owl theory, and I'm sure, yeah, you know, you must be tired uh, of these constant que questions about it. No, no, it's all right. It's all but right. Mark Gallagher asks, how does the owl theory work? And what's the importance of the Christmas decorations on, on the lawn? Uh, well, the importance of the Christmas decorations is it, it serves as a potential explanation of why she would have been outside late at night after leaving the pool. Uh, it was, you know, it was December the 8th or 9th. So they were getting ready. They were already putting up their Christmas decorations. They had put up the tree that day. Mm -hmm. They had the little, you know, toy soldiers, you know, the, on the, on the, uh, uh, stairway, uh, the main stairway. So they were already putting up their Christmas decorations. Uh, and um, when we started looking at the photos, 
uh, I can't remember if it was Michael or one of the kids. Somebody mentioned the fact that those little, they were little reindeer, but they weren't as big as the ones I don't think in the HBO. I think they were much tinier. Mm -hmm. uh, and someone mentioned the fact that, Hey, uh, those weren't out there yesterday. Um, but they were out there that next morning. So Larry Pollard's theory, and I have no way to prove this or to disprove it was that after she walked into the house from the pool, she decided, you know, those little things were right by the door where they were going to put them out. So she decided, well, I'll just walk out and put those out before I go to sleep. Yeah. And that that's what she did. And that the owl may have thought that those were, you know, food, you know, uh, small animals that they prey on. Uh, yeah. And that's what caused the, the attack. So uh, that was Larry Pollard's theory. Uh, I think they, uh, they depicted it in a, in a way that it could have happened. Yeah. Because when I first read the theory, because obviously it didn't make part of the, uh, of the, the, the show so much because it came so late in the day right. in terms of the trial, I just thought it was utterly bizarre. And then, you think about it, and I've listened to you talk about it, and you think that could have happened. Yes. It's plausible. It, it, and that's what I'll say. I, I, I can't say that's what happened. No. But I can say it's plausible. That's what yeah. I can say. And I, I, I wonder, I mean, I, I don't know if it's come up in other cases. I mean, obviously, the North Carolina area where these owls are, are sort of, you know, where they populate. I would be fascinated to see what, what a jury would make of that because over here, you know, our owls are small. We don't, <clears throat> excuse oh, me. Oh, no, not, not true. Not true. You have eagle owls over there, which are very similar to barred owls. And yep. I, you know, I, I think I may have shown you an article that came out of uh, maybe it was Scotland where a guy was knocked to his knees by a, what, yeah. what was an eagle owl. His head was, I, I have all the pictures. I, I'm happy to send them to you if you'd like to. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be fascinated to read them. Yeah, oh, them. no, 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 no. And it's happened all over the world. Uh, yeah. If you, if you Google owl attack, uh, barred owls attacking humans or owls attacking humans, if you Google that, you will come up with scores of in examples of when owls have done that. Scores, mm. including a number in the UK. Yeah. It, it it it's fascinating, and and Larry just sort of pieced this together by luck, or well, I guess you know. First of all, he lived there, so he yeah. knew there were owls around. I, you know, I would I would have no way of knowing that there were owls living in those woods, so he knew that. And I guess in looking at the autopsy photos, he he always thought you know that look, and it does. It looks like mm. a, a it looks like a, a talon, yeah. Mark. Uh, and, and that's what started him thinking about it. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, he didn't come to me with that until literally two days before my closing argument. Yeah. And I suppose you've advanced a whole nother case, a oh, whole yeah. other uh, argument. You can't well, like, I, 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 actually, and I had no evidence to support that argument. <laughs> you can't, you can't just walk in and argue something that you had not produced, produced any yeah. evidence on. Absolutely. Um, and uh, a question from Kathy Hyam, who asks, um, "Why did you agree to do the doc to do the documentary when most criminal defense lawyers try to avoid any comment on an on excuse me on an ongoing case?" 
Well, uh, well, first of all, I don't uh, generally try to avoid comment on an ongoing case when there's already media being put out by the prosecutor or the police. I think mm. that that was the the uh, the theory 30 or 40 years ago uh, before we had perp walks and, and uh, you know, uh, prosecutors and police leaking information and having press conferences. Uh, so I think if you don't respond in some way yeah. uh, in that situation, you're doing your client a disservice. So that that answers one part of that question. In terms of why I agreed to do the documentary, it's as I said earlier, Ed, I was fed up with how people in this popular media were portraying defense lawyers. Uh, Michael uh, wanted to do it because he was afraid that the uh, powers in Durham were going to try to railroad him. And he thought having a, an Academy Award winning documentary film crew might might uh, prevent that. Uh, and they agreed to certain conditions that I insisted on yeah. uh, to protect the attorney client relationship. Uh, so those three things are really what would cause me to do this. And I, to be honest, Ed, I don't know that anybody will ever do it again. Uh, no. uh, you know, it, it was a risk. Uh, yeah. it, it was a, a significant risk. Uh, and, and thankfully, you know, it worked out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, in terms of the risk, what, what was the risky elements to, to, to doing it? Well, uh, first of all, uh, uh, people could have decided that what defense lawyers do is really <laughs> accurately portrayed in the popular media. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, how I, how I did my work uh, was obviously, you know, I think it was captured accurately, uh, but could somebody who wanted to make defense lawyers look bad have, have done that? Probably so. Um, you know, they could have, uh, shown a bunch of scenes of me yelling at the, uh, at the PowerPoint operator. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you, you, there's always things you do that, you know, you sort of look back and you say, eh, maybe I sort of didn't do that right. Uh, so that was one risk. Um, yeah. But the bigger risk obviously was, was the attorney client privilege uh, and, and making sure that the prosecution could not get a hold of this mm. footage during the trial so the major risk, the really important risk, because uh, I didn't think I was going to conduct myself in any way that was going to be uh, negative, um, was the prosecutor getting a hold. For example, if we're meeting with the with our experts, uh, you know, can you imagine what would happen if, if the prosecutor got a hold of our meeting uh, there in the stairway where Werner and, and Henry and Farris are all sort of talking about what's there and, you know, it, it, that would give them a tremendous advantage in the trial. Um, so I required uh, two things. And then, of course, the risk was uh, if the documentary ended up showing Michael in a really negative light, yeah. uh, I didn't want it to affect the appeal in any way. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, two of the requirements were that they had to send their uh, footage back to France every night. Uh, so that if the prosecutor wanted to try to get it, uh, he was going to have to go to, uh, you know, the Hague or somewhere uh, to get a subpoena enforced. Uh, and number two, that uh, they would not 
uh, air any of the documentary uh, until all appeals, if any were required, had been finished. Uh, so again, that sort of makes the whole idea that somehow they were editing the film, uh, you know, to help his appeal just all the more ludicrous. And again, you know, Michael Stolberg knew that, and uh, and and so did uh, Antonio. They both knew it. Yeah. Um, another question from 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 Kathy focuses on the discovery of the blowpoke. What was your initial reaction when 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 that was discovered after countless searches? Well, it, well, it's interesting you say that. They, they had done three searches, but at the time they did the searches, they didn't have any idea what they were really looking for. They were looking for something that could have caused, you know, a, a beating death. And my understanding, I learned afterwards from the person who was there with them uh, doing measurements, uh, that they had actually found the blowpoke uh, where we ended up finding it, but they thought it was a curtain rod. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it didn't have the end on it, uh, uh, and it looked just like a, a curtain rod. So they picked it up. I'm told they even photographed it and put it back where we found it a year later with spider webs and dead bugs and all that stuff. So they hadn't missed it. They just didn't know what they were looking for because at that point, Candace had not suggested what the murder weapon was. Mm -hmm. So that's that. In terms of how I felt, I was really worried at first, you know, until I got down there uh, and saw all the spider webs and, and dead bugs and, and where it was, I thought, you know, I hope one of his kids didn't go out and buy a blowpoke and plant it there because that would have been horrendous for us. Mm. Just horrendous. So I was, I was actually very worried. Uh, and, and then in the actual documentary, you can see us going down into that dark. Uh, it is, it's actually a, a mechanical room uh, in the back of a, of a garage that's sort of never used. Um, and, uh, and we got down there, uh, and you could see all the, the spider webs and, and cobwebs and dead bugs. Uh, and, and that's why I called the photographer, not, you know, we didn't take our own, we called, we called a professional photographer on a Sunday morning, uh, and got him to come down there and take all those pictures. Yes. Yeah. We, we, we didn't want anybody accusing us of having touched anything or changed anything. Yeah. So uh, that was uh, the discovery of the blowpoke. And it was, you know, I thought that was a turning point in the case. I, I didn't understand how they could possibly convict him after we found the blowpoke. Yeah. And I, I, that, that comes on to uh, a, a question from Dominic Carrington, who, who's a man I work with at Northampton. You know, what, what were your thoughts on the original conviction? And were you surprised? I, I suspect from your last answer that there was an element of surprise. Uh, no, there was an element of shock. Uh, uh, and, and I think there's a scene in the original documentary where uh, they interview me about that. Um, and uh, uh, I was just uh, blown away, really, Ed. I, I, was, I was literally blown away. I didn't, I didn't see how that jury could convict Michael Peterson 
when we found the blowpoke that the prosecution spent months arguing was the murder weapon. Yeah. Um, and in regards to how this transpired sort of after the, the first trial, the Alfred plea is such a strange concept here, here in like having that in England and Wales. Um, are they, are they popular? Do they happen frequently in the U.S.? Or is it just a North Carolina thing? Or? No, no. It, it actually, the case that approved them was a North Carolina case that went to the United States Supreme Court called uh, North Carolina versus Alford. Uh, the defendant's name was Alford. Uh, but um, no, they're, they're used in many, many, many jurisdictions in the United States. Interestingly enough, uh, when I was speaking in, in Scotland uh, with a very prominent uh, QC, he was just appalled that I would let my client plead guilty to something uh, that he insisted he hadn't done. Yeah, uh, I mean, absolutely, he couldn't. He couldn't even wrap his mind around that. Um, but in the United States, you know, plea bargaining is such a uh, inherent part of our system uh, that people plead to things they didn't do all the time, all the time. To get out of jail, you know, somebody's in jail for a, a minor larceny and their bail is set at $250 and they can't make their bail and they sit in jail for three weeks and they're losing their apartment and they're losing their job and they're losing their kids. And a prosecutor you know, offers their lawyer a deal where if they plead to uh, disorderly conduct, uh, they can have time served. Yeah. Or they can continue to plead not guilty. And we'll get to the trial, you know, sometime next next year. Yeah. You Whilst know, you sit in prison. Right. So yeah. it happens all the time. Uh, normally, it's done sort of uh, in a in a less um, uh, overt and transparent way. You know, people get up and say, you know, uh, uh, are you in fact guilty of disorderly conduct? Oh, yes, I'm guilty of that. And the plea just goes through. Uh, yeah. And. Uh, so it happens all the time in the United States. Uh, the offer plea just makes transparent what otherwise goes on all the time. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and Janice Overlock has asked, what parts of the case were most difficult to reconcile, both professionally and, and, and personally? Um. The only thing that was difficult for me to reconcile was the verdict, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I never saw a credible motive. I never saw a credible scenario uh, that explained how or why Michael would have attacked Kathleen after spending a night uh, watching a movie, a, a romantic comedy and, and drinking wine and celebrating the fact that he had just been told that one of his books had been option for a movie. None of it made sense to me. Um, uh, and everything that Michael told me, to be honest, uh, checked out. Uh, yeah. everything. Um, so uh, I didn't have any problems. Uh, I, 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 I've said this many times. I believed Michael was innocent when we went to trial. And yeah. I still believe it today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, one last question about about the staircase. It ju it's just popped into my mind now. Um, in the HBO show, 
uh, there's a scene of Michael entering a store and he's served by Dwayne Deaver. Was that fiction or fact? I have I have heard that. I don't I I don't think it was a drugstore. I've heard and I, I, I don't know the answer to this. I could certainly ask Michael about it. Uh, but I've heard that he walked into some sort of a, a you know big store like a you know a, uh, I don't know what you have in, in Great Britain that's similar to our targets or uh, yeah uh, but it, it was a big store and uh, he saw I don't think he walked up to a counter but he saw Dwayne Deaver working in the store uh, and uh, you know obviously didn't want to interchange with him. No, understandably. So, yeah, so uh, that's my understanding. I don't know if it's true or not. Thank you. Um, in terms of your book, um, American Injustice, is there was there one particular case that inspired this, or was it just your career of dealing with sort of miscarriages of justice? You know, um, when we met, I was on a, a tour of uh, of the of the UK to talk about the staircase. And I don't know which show you may have caught, but, um, you know, sometimes I was speaking to a thousand people at a time. Yeah. Um, you know, four or 500 people at a time. And I realized that I suddenly had a platform, uh, where I could make people aware of things that I had known for years and years and years mm-hmm. and that they really didn't know and that they really needed to know about. Uh, and so that was that was the, the first germ. And now, of course, I think every criminal defense lawyer says, oh, I want to write a book about my cases. You know, it's sort of universal. Uh, but nobody ever thinks they're going to do it. And frankly, nobody does it. Um, but uh, anyway, that was the first germ of the idea. And, and from there, uh, Sonia, my, my wife and I decided to do a podcast. Mm. Uh, and so uh, we did the first season sort of on our own uh, with uh, Campfire uh, Productions, which had done uh, An Innocent Man on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, and we did uh, 10 or 11 episodes and it was very successful. Won uh, a Webby Award for best, uh, you know, true crime and social justice series. Uh, uh, and then Audible uh, UK, interestingly enough, uh, picked it up and bought it. Uh, and uh, we've now done two additional uh, seasons, fascinating cases. We've changed the format a little bit. So now we're, we're focusing on a single case each season. Okay. Episodes, uh, and they're amazing cases, one of which involves a, a British millionaire who was, uh, who was uh, arrested in Florida uh, for a, a double murder and convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, and... Uh, uh, has been on death row and now off death row in Florida for 30 some odd years. And, and Clive Stafford Smith, uh, who's a very prominent uh, uh, human rights lawyer in the UK. Uh, and if you haven't spoken to, to Clive, you should. Okay. Uh, uh, he and David Wilson uh, are friends. Uh, and so Clive represented him. Clive also practiced in the United States as well as in the UK. Uh, in any event, it's, it's a fascinating story. Uh, uh, it involves the uh, co- Colombian cartel and uh, uh, Pablo Escobar and uh, all kinds of interesting stuff. That you know, Miami during the uh, the drug yeah. in the eighties. Yeah, 
So, uh, and then we did a, a second one about uh, about a, a North Carolina case. So that was that was the second piece of it. You know, I realized, well, you know, we can get out to tens of thousands of people through the podcast. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I decided, well, let's let's write a book uh, and not not a I'm a great lawyer book, uh, but let's write a book about the human toll that these abuses of power take on individual people, including people like doctors. You know, yeah. you don't have to be a poor minority to suffer at the hands of, of the abuse of power by the police or prosecutors. Uh, and so um, uh, it took us, took me about a year, a year and a half. I had a, a, a associate of mine uh, do a lot of the research, you know, dug up the old files, reminded me of facts that I had put in the back of my mind, um, uh, and uh, and I tried to write it in a way that wasn't. Please excuse the uh, reference that it wasn't too academic. Yeah, uh, you know, I didn't I didn't want to uh, you know burden it with lots and lots of statistics and you know analysis of this or that. You know what criminologists might be interested in. Uh, I wanted to tell stories um, and. Uh, and fortunately, I had the stories to tell that I think uh, will engage people. And, and so I'm hoping it's the kind of book that can uh, educate as well as uh, engage and, and entertain people. And that's that's not an easy uh, no. fix. But, um, you know, it's been compared to Just Mercy, uh, which, you know, I just found incredibly uh, complimentary because I thought that was an amazing book. Yeah. Yeah, I well, I think you've written an an excellent book. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and um, I would recommend anyone who has even the slightest uh, of interest in, in criminal justice to to, to read it. Uh, final question: uh, You're off to CrimeCon in London next week. I uh, am. Are you going to be there? I'm not entirely sure. I'm going to try to. Yeah, I'm going to try to. Let, um, let let us know. Let me know. I'll I'll, I'll get you in for free. Oh, superb. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll make that work. Uh, so yeah, and, there's a, there's, and there's a VIP dinner that night, a Saturday night. So uh, uh, let me know if you can make it. That would be that would be great. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll check with my uh, with my missus. And I, that sounds much better than what I've probably got planned. So. Right. <laughs> uh, superb. Um, so what are you doing at um, CrimeCom? Well, uh, interestingly enough, we are doing uh, a lot of... Uh, uh, well, I'll put it this way. The topic is um, tunnel vision and confirmation bias. Uh, we're talking about that, but we're talking about it in the context of the owl theory. Okay. Uh, because I had tunnel vision when I tried this case. I, I heard Michael say, I found my wife, she fell down the stairs. There was no evidence of an intruder that we saw. And so I focused in on the fall theory. And I'm not going to uh, ruin my speech, but there were yeah. certain facts that I simply ignored and made up stories about to explain them away. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, confirmation bias. We're going to talk about how that leads to tunnel vision. Uh, and we're going to talk about how that all fits into the owl theory. Um, 
And uh, we're going to take a poll uh, before I talk about the owl theory to see how many people uh, believe in it. Okay. And we're going to do a poll after and yeah. see, see if we're able to convince people that, uh, that it, it's plausible, just plausible. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. That sounds interesting. Well, I look forward to seeing you next Saturday then. Um, Excellent. Well, good. That sounds great. But thank you very much for your time today, David, as ever, extremely interesting. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Thanks, Ed. Take care. Cheers. Well, thanks, David, for such an interesting chat. And I, as I said at the end there, I really appreciate you taking your time out of your day to come and chat to me. Um, and thank you for watching and for supporting the channel. Um, if you have any ideas for another natter, then please do get in touch. I'd like to thank all the supporters as ever for uh, backing and supporting the show and you guys for watching and listening. As I say, any ideas for Anatta, please do get in touch in the comments.